This episode of the Screen Tripper podcast was first broadcast on February the 3rd, 2017. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Screen Tripper, the film and TV podcast from Culture Trip. I'm your host, Kassam Luch, the film and TV editor, and I'm joined today by Andrew Webb, the food editor of the site, Ooh. and Luke Bradshaw, who's also in the studio, and he's going to be talking about, not sport this time, but he's going to be talking about the Tom Hardy series, Taboo. We'll also be joined by the cast of Moonlight, the Oscar-nominated movie, and we'll have a special word with the director of the movie, Barry Jenkins. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Guys, Moonlight, um, incredible film, and it's getting an incredible reception as well. Um, were you worried at all about a potential negative reaction as well? Because it is a subject matter that we don't usually see on, in cinema. Not really. I mean, I think, you know, in the making of it, we all responded to the story and to the script and to the team that was around it. So, you know, we just focused on making the best movie we could. And I think that the fact that people have responded so rapturously to it just shows that People have a real appetite for stories like these about people who are somewhat un- underrepresented on screen. When we, when we see you take on the role of um, Sharon, um, it, he's he's in a very different place from where we've seen him yeah. beforehand, and it's yeah. a big gap between the second and third acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear a little bit about what's happened to him in the meantime. But how did you play that? What did you go through in terms of developing the character to where he's at when we see him first? Right. For me, it was you know it was at that stage in his life, he's at this place where. He's developed this disdain towards everyone. You know, he's developed this hate towards everyone. And for me, it was really about kind of embodying that and walking around. I live in L.A. Walking around L.A. with this kind of a hate towards any and everyone that I came in interaction with and kind of walking around feeling as if I had this this secret to hide from everyone because I wasn't secure with myself in this particular moment. I, I, I didn't love myself because... Of because of that, you know what I mean. Because of that, I couldn't love other people. I couldn't receive other people. So that was kind of really my means of finding who this person was and really being able to relate to this person. Naomi, um, incredible film and an incredible performance in, in this movie. Um, has the reception to it been something that you expected when you were making it? Um, no, really, because I, you know, this movie was made for. I think it's just about a million dollars, basically, which is a tiny budget in film terms. And everybody did it because, you know, got involved because they were committed and they really wanted to tell this story. But we we never thought that it would have this kind of reception and that, you know, people would respond in this way. I thought that people who saw it would love it, but I didn't know that, you know, people in the numbers that are seeing it at the moment would love it. It's, it's, it's very, very special. It's, it's an exciting time. Mm-hmm. And as someone who is quite high profile, is it important for you to be involved in projects like this to make sure they do get out there and that people do see them? Yeah, I think... Um, You know, I I love to do the big franchises. I love to do the Bonds and the Pirates and and that's wonderful and is is rewarding in a different way. Um, But it's really important for me to to do passion projects, things that I really feel are incredible, having important messages. Mm -hmm. Um, And the character you play, Paula, um, she's she's very hard to like. um, But did you find anything in her that you could, you know, see some positives in her? Um... I struggled to like her in the beginning, but uh, then I did a lot of research about addiction 
And um, I, what I really learned was that Paula isn't able to express love because she wasn't able, she wasn't given the love that she needed. Um, and also she is using addiction because she's in, in, in an incredible amount of emotional pain. And once I connected with that truth, I had a lot of empathy with her and it was a lot easier to play her. What's Barry like as a, as a director? Because it feels like a very personal project to him. Mm-hmm. Um, did that come across when you were making the movie? Yeah, I mean, this is Barry's story. This is, you know, his mother was a crack addict. Um, it's also Terrell, our writer's story as well. Um, so it's an incredibly personal story for both of them. And at times on set, you know that, you know, Barry found it very difficult. And he would say, you know, you're reminding me of my mother now. Oh, this is difficult, you know. Um, but that's what I was there to do. I was there to, you know, tell the story as faithfully as I possibly could. Barry, incredible film. Um, and there's a great reception to the film as well. Is that something you expected when you were coming up with the idea? Uh, no, man. I mean, uh, as someone who doesn't think uh, very highly of themselves, um, no, I, I didn't expect uh, this level of response at all. I mean, for one, it's a challenging film. You know, it's uh, an, an orthodox structure, you know, unorthodox approach to casting, uh, very difficult subject matter. Um, but, but I think uh, in being very truthful to the world and the characters, I guess people are responding to something that just feels real um, and lived in. Um, but no, I did not expect this at all, man. Uh, the depiction of uh, Miami, I thought as well, was something that we don't usually see that side of it. Um, how was it? What was it like bringing that to the screen? And is that something you really wanted to get across? Yeah, you know, I think place uh, so far in the work I've done, you know, place has been uh, essential and very important to to the characters and to the themes uh, of the films. You know, Miami is you know my hometown. It's where I was born and raised. Um, and, you know, there's a version of this film that could have been set in New Orleans or, or Atlanta. And I mention those places because, you know, in the U.S. there's all these tax rebates. Our budget could have gone a lot farther. But, you know, it was very important to me, you know, that the world of Miami, you know, have an actual uh, influence um, on the film. I think the movie looks a certain way and sounds a certain way because of where it's set. Um, and I couldn't have taken the film anywhere else, you know, and got that same look and the same sound. So, yeah, it was extremely important. And, 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 and one of the things I'm proudest of in the film is just how, not how well the city looks and sounds, but how truthful to my experience of Miami, you know, because I hadn't seen that in a film before. Mm-hmm. And, and music as well plays an incredible part in the, in the film. Um, was it fun choosing the, the songs and did you uh, have any particular tunes in mind that you wanted to use? Yeah, you know, some of the, some of the music was actually written uh, into the screenplay, you know, which is something you don't often do. You know, the song uh, Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis, you know, that's literally written into the script, all the lyrics. And, and you're really not supposed to do this, but when we filmed the scene, we actually played the song um, in the room, which is a huge mistake because you might not clear it, you know? Um, but I was, like, steadfast that that song had to be in that moment that I wanted to plant a flag. Depiction of Sharon, when we see him early on in the two uh, first acts, mm-hmm. he looks very similar, I, I felt. Mm-hmm. And then by the third act, it's, it's, he, feels, he feels and looks very different. Mm-hmm. You know, he's bulked out and he, mm-hmm. you know. Was that a deliberate move on your part to find someone who essentially expresses that difference in time? You know, it was and it wasn't. You know, when Travante Rhodes came into audition, uh, one, he came into audition for Andre Holland's part before it was Andre Holland's part, which, you know, watching the movie is absolutely ridiculous. He could not play that part. He's just not right for it. Um, but as he was reading, uh, you know, uh, Kevin, the character, I just saw in him this, again, this very jarring, very, very jarring 
depiction of what can happen when masculinity runs amok, when the performance of masculinity kind of overcomes a person. Um, and yet he seemed very vulnerable. You know, there was still this thing um, in his eyes. So the way I describe the third chapter is you're looking at this man who almost looks unrecognizable, you know, pursuant to the characters who have come before, and yet you look into his eyes and you can still see that little boy um, that he was. And, and that was kind of the point of, of going with such a physical departure for the third story. Um, and I think Travante does a great job of still channeling this inner person who's been, like, literally buried behind all these muscles, you know, in this grill. I think one of my favorite scenes is when uh, uh, Travante gets that call from Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was the thinking behind that scene? And was that based in uh, reality? or Because uh, I think everyone can identify with something like that, someone yeah. from the past coming back. You know, so I'll give you credit, because I've done a lot of these. Nobody's ever mentioned that. Uh, so the third chapter of, of the film... There's only two scenes uh, in that chapter that are rooted in the play. Uh, one of them is a phone call from the mother, uh, and the other one is the phone call from Kevin. Um, and that's based on a real experience between uh, Terrell and whoever was the, the Kevin uh, in his life. Um, and so everything in that third chapter is built from just the energy um, of that phone call. And so the phone call was given to me. You know, It was written uh, in the play. Uh, and again, with everything that was in Terrell's voice, like in his literal voice, I wanted to really get it right. Um, and I think that the performance those guys give in that phone call is just so rich that you buy, you know, that he's going to get in that car and drive down to Miami. And you believe that these two per- people sitting across from each other in this diner in the middle of the night are actually going to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone I've spoken to says how incredible the script was and how it, you know, they mm-hmm. wanted to do it instantly. But was it difficult for you to get the project off the ground, given the subject matter and, and the fact that it is a predominantly or in mm-hmm. almost entirely all uh, African-American cast? Uh, you know, shockingly, it wasn't. You know, the only sort of hindrance to this film, you know, was, was me, myself, to be honest. Um, once I decided I was going to, to do it, you know, I had to play for like six or seven months. And then when I decided to write it, it took 10 days uh, to write the first draft. And once we started going out with it, we had three companies who were offering to finance it, you know. Um, and the company that ended up financing financing at A24 doesn't even finance films. They created a lane, you know, to finance this film. They distribute films, you know. Um, so it's it's interesting. I think when you when you're working from passion and authenticity, I think people respond to that. Um, and the idea that you know black stories don't sell, LGBTQ stories don't sell, these things, uh, they never came into the picture because we decided our story is a black LGBTQ story that we're going to sell, you know? And once we decided we would do that, you know, it's like Gotha, you know? But genius has bold, boldness has genius and magic in it, you know? You just have to put the energy out there, so. Okay, guys, uh, so here we are with Andrew Webb and Luke Bradshaw. Hello, Luke, you've been on before, so you're, I'm expecting you to be the pro on this particular occasion. Uh, I should point out he's looking a bit green because he's just done a stacks challenge where he ate a five-patty burger a plate full of fries and a giant milkshake. So, Luke, how are you feeling? I feel better than I did an hour ago, but it was absolute pure peer pressure. And who instigated it? Yeah, who did? Is who told you to go and do that challenge? Uh, the man standing to my left, food editor Andrew Webb. I think you bravely took one for the team there, Luke. That was a big challenge, and quite frankly, twenty-nine minutes fifty-three seconds is—I think you're a contender to get it under half an hour. Yeah, I mean that's like the four-minute mile of food, right? 
Well, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, food editor, do tell us. Do tell us. Also, technically, our boss is here. So, so uh, I'm really impressed with Luke. I thought that was that was a great piece of work. But we're not here to talk that much about food. We're here to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about two TV shows that are. Well, either on at the moment or coming on very soon. Yeah. Uh, let's start with Taboo, which is on right now. Uh, Tom Hardy series, produced by Ridley Scott. Um, it's on BBC. Luke, I know you've been watching it. Uh, and you're more impressed with it than I am. So why don't you tell me what you like about it first? Um, part of the reason I love it is because it hasn't let me down. So I think <laughs> Tom Hardy can be a bit hit and miss. I'm not a massive, like, super Tom Hardy fan. However, this I really liked and mainly because I thought it had the potential to be style over substance Okay, and it's not that at all it's very very good so Tom Hardy does have a lot of fans though despite what you say Uh, what is it about him that you don't like uh, you can understand what he's saying in this one, right? Which is always a bonus. Okay. In obviously his performance as Bane, that was an issue. Even in Peaky Blinders, I found it a bit of an issue. And I sometimes feel like he's trying to do a like media project. Okay. Yeah. And in this, it's not like that at all. It's just a little bit more subtle, and I really, really enjoy it. So the creator of this series is also the guy who created Lock with Tom Hardy. I don't know if you've seen that film. Uh, is that one of his better performances, Locke? Locke Lock is good. Locke is Lock. really good. So Locke basically sees Tom Hardy in a car for the whole entire runtime of the film and talking on a phone, basically. That is the only narrative of that. Uh, this one is completely different. I, I don't know if I can ask you to explain it because I've not fully come to terms with what Taboo is about. But do you know? So. <laughs> Here we go. Deep breath. Tom Hardy returns back to England after being in Africa. He, his father has died right. and he has inherited land in the United States. The Crown and the East India Tea Company want that land because of how valuable it is in terms of trade deals. He knows how valuable it is and he wants to keep it. And it's the battle between those three trying to compete for the land. Okay. Now, th- there is a lot more going on in the series and we're not going to spoil it, uh, partly because it's a secret and partly because we don't know exactly what's going on. Um, there's some there's some witchcraft paranormal stuff that you would really love. Everyone would really love, I'm assuming, is what you're saying there. Um, yes, there is. Uh, so I, I'm not sure about the show yet because I don't think it's fully connected. I don't think everything that they're trying to build up is making sense. I think there's going to be a lot of loose ends that aren't going to be tied up by the end of the series. And that is one thing that really annoys me about TV shows where they set up so many different strands and they don't come back and bring them all together. Lost is a prime example of that where they set up so many different things and you get really drawn into it and then they just drop certain elements of it. Do you think they're going to have a completely coherent story for this? Well, they aren't. There's not nearly as many of those strands as in Lost. And I don't think you can say that you're not going to watch it because you think something might happen if you don't know it's going to happen. I've, le- I've read The Lay of the Land. I've, I've seen it. I've, I've watched enough TV shows to know how these things work. I'm very happy with how it's going. And I also think it works a lot better than his other stuff because his support cast is so good. So Stephen Graham is in it. Una Chaplin. Um, Jonathan Price is very good. <laughs> Very sweary as well, isn't it? Very sweary. Yeah. Lots of effing. Um, Mark Gatiss, I don't like. He, in general or just in this? In this. Okay, I don't like him in general, I think. He's pretty bad in Sherlock as well. Yeah, he's like, they, he's it's too much like a League of Gentlemen character and it's a bit of a cartoon where everything else is quite serious and down the line. And I really, really don't like him. Okay, so Taboo is on Saturday nights on BBC One, I think. 9.15 or thereabouts. Just before Match of the Day... It's a very good run-up to match of the day, I'll tell you that now. Depends how your team's performed, obviously, but there you go. Uh, the other show that I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to speak to Andrew about this, but you can jump in if you want at any point because I know you're a big fan, uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is still a while away, 
but the excitement is building. I know they're filming yet at the moment, or they're rap filming, I guess they would have by this point, and they're in post-production. Uh, Andrew, first of all, what is your fascination with Game of Thrones? Well, I love it because I haven't read the books, and I'm one of those people that just enjoy the show in and of itself. I was a slow comer to it. I got into it like the sort of end of series one, and, you know, as you do, you kind of find it on the internet at first, and then but you kind of get more into it. But uh, I think it, this has been the best series because it, we didn't quite know where it was going to go. It was first oh, time. so you thought the last series was the best one so far? <laughs> well, I just like the fact that it didn't have... Like, ah, uh, the book people kind of go in, ah, wait till you see what happens. <laughs> okay. So that was kind of interesting. I think it's finally, I mean, series, was it series four? That kind of, there was just like buddy movies that wandering around, all that sort of stuff. Finally, she's going, she's got the dragons, she's got like House Tyrell, she's got like the whole armada. It's, it's going to go off. I, I think the dragons are the worst part of the show, but that's probably my take on that. But yeah, you've got to have them, right? I mean, that's the... Oh yeah, I guess. What, given... is it like... Why are they the worst part of the show? Because they're like nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, the minute, she, like you say, she's got dragons now, well, that's it. That is the end game, surely. A, a small midget guy with a sword is not going to be able to face off against dragons, is he? True. But she's had dragons for a while. and She's had so eggs. She was half naked in the first series and she had eggs. But her dragons have been locked up and for a couple of series now. One of the dragons is bad as well, right? Well, I, I mean, this is the thing. It's like, these are, these are sort of like out out of frame of reference like no one's seen one for like you know you look at what happened when mammoths and giants came through the wall everyone's like <gasps> but then when the dragons land in those things the sons of the harpies are like yeah I'll have a go and they were like who are basically like <laughs> merchants and the upper class I mean so we had like massed upper class dudes in the slave cities taking on things that it'd be like you or I trying to have a pub fight with a minotaur it's like we would be like what the hell's that so some of the bits of that kind of weren't believable but um, I think now they're all there and it's all kicking off. It's going to be it's going to be the best series yet. It's so weird. I didn't get into Game of Thrones until season four, I think, and then I binge watched all of it. And because the whole sort of sword and sandals epic type thing, Dungeons and Dragons, all the games. What was it? The games that the nerds used to play in a pub with the dice and all that stuff. Come on, Castle. Uh, you were yeah, D and D. Warhammer. Was it Warhammer? You were D and D. Warhammer. Warhammer. All that Gambled. stuff. I thought that was going to be exactly the sort of thing that I hate. And the thing is, it's got all those elements, but there's so much more going on in it. Um, I'm like you, though. I think it's really good that we've moved beyond the books and we're kind of forging our own territory now, making our own stories. Mm. Uh, Do you think it's going to go too far away, though, from the original source material in terms of where they go and the characters that they introduce? I mean, if they introduce new characters now, they're going to be completely new. Well, what was... Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, what, what was really attractive to it in the first instance was the sort of diplomacy in the kind of the kind of machinations the politics you know it was like kind of west wing with, with armor um the the danger is is that how do you keep topping the bigger and bigger battle so when you had like hard home when the all the zombies came and right. it was just all the free folk got killed you know like wow that was pretty amazing then we had battle of the bastards which was just absolutely incredible and going back to like the red wedding wasn't really a battle but was super shocking I don't think the purple wedding worked quite in the same way. The red wedding and the, some of the sort of smaller scale things are shocking because they're really quite visceral and, and when it's just kind of CGI'd ants storming over hills, <laughs> which is how my wife describes most of the films I watch, Star Wars or whatever, any kind of, you know, you, you just become this sort of, it all becomes like a computer game, you have this sort of God's eye view of it. So I think the potential to use the dragons and to use her advancement of things 
Um, like like the, the the sort of play where with the green fire when they blew up the sept, and that was a kind of the, the tension was ratcheting up, and it was like you know she does not ex- intend to suffer the consequences of of the, those actions, and the sparrow being such a such a character, you know that that was a really great sort of crucible moment. But I think if it's just dragons flying around torching things, it'll be a real waste. So that'll be interesting. That is what the next series is set up to be. I think there will be more to it. I hope it does go back to some of the political elements that you mentioned from the first couple of series. Yeah. Um, again, that's part of the reason why I don't like the dragons being introduced because they take away from that. It stops being about the kind of uh, manoeuvring behind the scenes that was so important to the first. And Charles Dance being gone is such a loss. I used to love him. He was great. He was so good in it. But then we've got loads of other like classic British thefts that they must have. They'll they'll they'll, they'll write in those sorts of characters. Are we going to see? like some of those more older Thespa characters because they do lend that sort of real gravitas to it. And But then having said all that... <laughs> uh, we said that. No, but see, this is the thing about going first. Having said all that, and they are great, wasn't it great to see Lyra, Lila Mormont as uh, Lady Mormont? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. be like a child. And she had like one of the most powerful, you know, who did a dance to the call? And that bit, of, like, <laughs> it was just fabulous. So I think, like, that's a classic, like, Game of Thrones thing where they sort of turn it... You know, on its head, and you have all these old lords and a child. So maybe, maybe. Okay, well, it is the most popular show on TV. I think we've briefly tried to explain why that is. It's hard to explain it though, so you can still watch it, catch up before the new series starts in April, I believe. Yeah. Uh, we're definitely going to be talking about it more. We're going to be looking at it closer on the site as well. So make sure you visit culturetrip.com. Get your opinion on it again when it starts. Oh, yeah, get hyped. Get hyped. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. We've been talking about Moonlight. Uh, Taboo and of course Game of Thrones and uh, if you want to hear more from us make sure you subscribe and join us on iTunes which is now available and also on our site culturetrip.com Bye! (laughs) 